We live in a world that is ever-changing. The changes that we experience are multifaceted. Changes in technology, changes in cultural viewpoints and perspectives, changes in political and educational institutions, changes in religious institutions and churches. If you go back even just 10 years and assess the state of things in all of those areas back then, there would be many things that would appear strange to you. Things would seem very different. And if you were to go back 20 years or 30 years, you would feel like you were in a different country. We live in a world of changes. And all of these are examples of broad cultural changes having massive widespread impact. But we experience personal changes as well, which are equally significant for us. We lose jobs, and we get new jobs. We lose cars, and we hopefully get new cars. We move houses, move areas. And of course, one major change that we're all going to be adjusting to is a change in the church that we attend. And there's something in us that might feel threatened by changes. It can be disorienting. We thought we could rely on things just to keep on being a certain way. But we can't. We put out our hand to steady ourselves, and the wall gives way. We want solid ground. We think we have it, but then the earth starts shaking, and everything moves all about. Where can we have peace? Where can we have stability? Where can we have security in a world of change, in a world where nothing stays put, in a world where everything is shaking? This, in large part, is the subject of our sermon text today, the gospel reading for this Sunday, Luke 21, 25 to 33. To set the stage, Jesus is speaking to his disciples during the last week of his life. We read or preached, considered together last Sunday, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This would have taken place a day or two after, as Jesus is back on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and begins discussing with them uh, about the the, the coming destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple, which he had foretold, not one stone will be left on another. And also the disciples' question about the final judgment. When will that take place? Because his disciples thought these things would just go right next to each other, right? If Jerusalem and the temple is going to be destroyed, then that must mean the last judgment is going to happen. So Jesus talks about both, even though in AD 70 the temple was destroyed and Uh, The last judgment has not happened yet. They see it together. So Jesus discusses both 
together. And he has just discussed for some length the imminent destruction on Jerusalem, fulfilled in AD 70. And Jesus now turns to discuss the question of his second coming to judge the whole world. On the last day, here in verses 25 to 33, and notably, Jesus describes this coming as preceded by a great shaking of the whole earth, of the whole universe. In fact, he says, And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. When the Lord of creation returns in glory to judge the world, the world will be all stirred up at his return. Heavenly signs, roaring sea and waves, the powers of the heavens being shaken before the Lord God, the Almighty, the creator of all, ruler of all, whom all creation serves. When he comes down, the earth is stirred up. And we might view this great shaking and stirring up in two ways. It could be viewed as being stirred up in joyful anticipation. All things shake and quake and move about because they are eager to greet this coming Lord. Like children on Christmas morning, all creation travails and groans till he comes. And then when he does come, they, it can't contain itself. Or, or as I suspect, or in addition to that first idea, they may be stirred up in a way that is foreboding. Because the Lord is coming, yes, to make all things new, yes, to bring salvation, but also to judge. He comes to inflict vengeance on the ungodly. And so the earth and heavens tremble before this great judge, this terrifying judge. And the signs take place to signify that this judgment is here. And there's nowhere to hide. Everything you thought was stable is not. You are before him. Now I ask you, if you were alive then, how would you feel? If the Lord were to grant you to be alive then, what would your reaction be? We said already that we live in a world that is ever changing and shaking. Well, what about when the very sun is darkened, the moon fails to give forth its light, stars fall from heaven, and the mighty oceans and their waves are in an uproar? When all earthly stability seems to give way. There are two possible reactions one might have to this great cosmic shaking. First, what characterizes the nations? Distress, perplexity, fainting with fear, and foreboding. There's another possible reaction. Straighten up, stand tall, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. You see, these great and terrible signs should be no terror to you. Because this means the time has come. Your redemption is here. 
Yes, a time is coming when all created things will be shaken. All earthly stability will crumble. All earthly empires and nations and organizations and institutions will collapse. And when that happens, take comfort. And even in the minor shakings that take place throughout history leading up to that final event, you can take comfort. Your redemption draws near. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, quoting the prophet Haggai chapter 2, that a day is coming when the Lord will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The author tells us in verse 27 of Hebrews 12, this indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There are two kinds of things in this world, things that can be shaken and things that cannot be shaken. Now, C.S. Lewis says, all that can be shaken will be shaken and only the unshakable remains. The Lord will take up on that day, as it were, a great cosmic sifter and he will shake everything and all creation will be shaken and much will fall through the cracks like fine grains of sand. But there are some things that will stay behind, some things that cannot be shaken out. What cannot be shaken? What abides? The author of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 28 of Hebrews 12, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And our Lord says in verse 33 of this chapter, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Christian, you can be confident that when all things change and shake around you, and when all creation in the very heavens shake at that last day, you can be confident because you are a part of a kingdom that is unshakable. And in the midst of all that changes in your life or life circumstances or in the world around you, know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You go back 10 years Everything looks strange. Jesus is the same. You go back 30 years, seems like you're in a foreign country. Jesus is the same. Friends may pass away. Family may pass away. Churches and institutions and denominations all may pass away. Heaven and earth themselves may pass away. But the words of Jesus Christ will never pass away. His words of grace and comfort of promise and command, preserved in Scripture, these will never pass away. So when you see these things take place, straighten up, raise your heads. And notice in verse 28 that the reason we can have confidence in the midst of this cosmic shaking of all creation is because we know that this means our redemption is drawing near. Let's dwell for a moment on that thought of redemption. What is redemption? Redemption literally refers to release from captivity. Originally, it was used as the word for the manumission of slaves. 
Slaves were redeemed at a price paid to set them free. So you see, the day of our redemption is drawing near. The day is coming when you and I will be set free from slavery by the grace of God. What are we in slavery to? Well, by nature, you and I are slaves to two things, sin and death. We're enslaved to sin because our hearts by nature are set upon it. And we're enslaved to death and suffering and futility and all manner of sorrow, including condemnation to hell, because of our sin. The gospel is the good news that God, our gracious and heavenly Father, has redeemed us by the blood of his Son. His blood was the price paid to set us free. Through faith and union with Christ, you and I are free from sin's penalty and condemnation. And its reigning power in our hearts and lives has been broken by the presence of the indwelling Spirit of Christ, who enables us to repent and walk in faith, hope, and love. But every saint knows that this freedom that we experience uh, is incomplete. We still have the presence of sin in our hearts and lives. Although the penalty of sin may have been taken away, the presence of sin is still felt in our hearts and lives. And not only that, we are also subject to the results of sin in this fallen world. Living as we do in a world subjected to futility, full of blood, sweat, and tears, suffering, pain, and death. And so it is that our redemption is both a present reality that we already experience and a future one that we yearn to experience. We both have been redeemed, redeemed from sin's condemnation, redeemed from sin's reigning power in our hearts. And we will be redeemed one day, fully and finally, redeemed from the presence of sin in our hearts and lives, redeemed from all evil and danger and suffering and death and futility in this world as we await life in a new heavens, new earth, free from the taint of the curse of sin. It can be easy to get discouraged by the ongoing presence of sin in our lives and in this world. It can be easy to get discouraged by the presence of suffering and injustice and death. But brothers and sisters, lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. It's nearer today than it was yesterday. It's nearer now than it was when you first believed. Do not grow discouraged. When the world is in distress, in anxiety and perplexity and fear and foreboding, stand up straight, lift up your head. The day of liberty is coming. The year of the Lord's great jubilee. Another term Jesus uses to refer to what will be brought on this day is the kingdom of God. Verse 31. When you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. What is this kingdom? It is 
the rule and reign of God over his people through the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Under the Messiah, the anointed one, the Lord's people would enjoy unprecedented peace and prosperity. Righteousness and faithfulness would be established among the Lord's people. They would all be righteous. They wouldn't have to teach one another to know the Lord. They would all know the Lord. The Spirit would be poured out in an unprecedented way. Nations would stream to Jerusalem, setting aside war and violence, and instead worshiping the Lord and hearing his law. Death itself would come undone. The dead would be raised, all the world would be judged, and all the wicked would be removed to the place of eternal punishment with the righteous reigning and living forevermore with God. And all of these abundant blessings promised as part of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament were expected to come with the advent of the Messiah. Jesus inaugurated that kingdom. He brought it in his ministry through his teaching, his healing and casting out demons, through his death on the cross, making an end to sin's guilt and condemnation for his people. Jesus inaugurated this kingdom and he continues this kingdom in his church. Many of these promises that we have read and heard just now are having fulfillment in the church in the present age under the reign of Christ as we experience his peace and blessing. But we are all too aware that this fulfillment is partial and imperfect. We await the fullness of the blessings envisioned because sin and suffering and death still remain among us. Not all the world is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Satan is still at work. And there remain many enemies of God and his people, many sufferings and hardships that we must endure. And so it is that we await the consummation of all that is promised and which has been postponed, as it were, to Christ's second coming. This was the great secret that was not clearly known before the coming of Christ, that Christ would come and bring these blessings in a two-stage manner. He would come twice. As we heard in the collect, once in humility and once in great glory and majesty. You see, at the center of this promised coming redemption is the Redeemer. At the center of this coming kingdom is the King. Back to verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. As a preacher, I'm always aware that my words fall short of the subject uh, which I am treating. I have never... And no preacher has ever preached the word of God adequately. We have never and can never fully capture its grandeur and glory. What words may I use to express this great event? This glorious and blessed hope that lies before us. For that day when our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love, not in that poor lowly stable, but in heaven set at God's right hand on high. This sight, so glorious, so full of power, 
so terrifying and yet comforting to his people. Just listen to these other scriptures as the word of God uh, speaks to you concerning this great hope that we have in Christ at his revealing. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Friends, do not ever lose sight of what our hope is. Our hope is not found in this world. Our hope is not found in this or that Christian institution or this or that Christian leader this or that politician, this or that job, this or that possession. Our hope is found in Christ, Christ our life, who will one day appear, and we will then appear with him in glory. Christ has come. He will come again. He came the first time in humility. His shelter was a stable. His cradle was a stall. But he will come the second time in splendor with all his holy angels and in the glory of his Father. Why this division into two comings? Why is it that Christ came the first time in great humility and only at the last day in great glory to judge the living and the dead? Why didn't he bring it all at once? To create a time of repentance so that all may turn from their sin and trust in Christ ahead of this day of his second coming. If he will judge the world, and he will judge the whole world, he wants to see to it that all the world has heard of him and that there will be, we are promised, believers from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, a vast, numberless multitude of the redeemed. He wanted to open a door of salvation to all nations, to call in the Gentiles, as we heard in Romans 15. And after the fullness of the Gentiles, 
to then call back the Jews. Romans 11. Why did the Lord do it this way? Why did he fulfill the promises in this two-stage fashion? The Apostle Peter addresses this question most extensively and beautifully in his second epistle. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Brothers and sisters, you and I live on borrowed time. We live in the time between the times. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but not consummated. The light has come and is shining into the darkness, but it is not yet full day. So let us make best use of the time. Redeem the time, for the days are evil. Cast away all works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us be faithful to the Lord. Make disciples of all nations. Spread the knowledge of Christ who so loved us, proclaiming the gospel to all creation. And in doing so, may we hasten the coming day of God as we cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. He will come, and all his holy ones with him. The coming one will come and will not delay, with power and in great glory, with his holy angels and the glory of his Father. He will sit on his glorious throne and beckon us to his right hand, there to reign and rule with him forever. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the return of Christ. Do not be discouraged. Our church is dissolving, yes, but the church among us is not dissolving. We are not dissolving. Heaven and earth will pass away. They'll dissolve. Earthly nations will dissolve. Denominations and specific church organizations will dissolve. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, and only the unshakable remains. But we ourselves will not dissolve. We will not be shaken. For we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. We have received the word of Christ which can never pass away. So let us be grateful. Let us worship the Lord with reverence and awe. Do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed or in perplexity or fear. Stand up straight. Lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. Your salvation will not delay. Your eyes will look upon your God. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this hope that we have through Christ. Your word says that everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. May we purify ourselves. May we be found ready and eagerly looking for his coming. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.